Ephesians chapter 3, I'll read the chapter, thereafter we shall go on. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, an apostle for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to, the, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its great warnings, its great encouragements to us and help us to live according to it. Grant us the grace to listen to your word attentively this morning. We pray that in spite of the heat, in spite of many distractions around us, that we may seek to hear your voice. That your word will come in power of your Holy Spirit. That you may teach us your truth. Help us to behold Christ 
this morning. Help me, Lord, to be faithful to that which you have given us. We pray for my hearers as well, that they may be faithful in hearing your word. Father, we are grateful. Thank you for all the blessings that we have in Christ and help us that we may see Christ through the pages of your word this morning. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've completed chapter 1 and 2 of uh, this wonderful letter. And chapter 1 and 2 are the great pillars in the Christian faith. This morning we move to chapter 3, which is not well known but it is very rich and it has a lot to teach us. Last time in chapter 2 from verse 1 to 10, we considered this graphic description of our depraved state. The Bible describes us as dead in the trespasses and sins. And then from verse 11 and 12, it tells us of our alienated state. It introduces a new status in verse 13, that you are the temple of God, that the church is the household of God, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles with Christ Jesus as its foundation. And Paul has been talking about this glorious newfound unity we have as a church between the Jews and the Gentiles that Jews and Gentiles have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they become one. And he has spoken about the things that we share in common because of Christ. We come to this new section, this new chapter, and it is not disconnected from what he has been speaking about. And this morning we shall consider verse 1 of chapter 3 and the sermon is titled Paul a prisoner and servant of Jesus Christ Paul a prisoner and servant of Jesus Christ I look forward to spending a number of weeks in this chapter and I want to show you from this verse that Paul identifies himself as a prisoner and then he also identifies himself as a servant. He says very clearly that for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And then secondly, he identifies himself as a servant when he says, on behalf of you Gentiles. That he's a servant to the Gentiles. Later in verse 3, he's going to identify himself as a steward. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He identifies himself as a steward. Verse 7, he identifies himself a minister. It says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the, power, by the working of his power. And then in verse 8, he identifies himself as the very least of all saints but today i want us to focus paul a prisoner for christ jesus and paul a servant of jesus christ notice the first three words 
of this chapter for this reason. So Paul is not introducing a new subject. He's not beginning a new theme or a new subject. It means that he's continuing with the very subject he was dealing with in the second chapter. For this reason. In other reason, in other words, because of this. And so what is Paul referring to? Paul is referring to the astounding truth about the Gentiles who have believed the gospel and have become one body with the Jews in Christ. This is the same theme that Paul is talking about in chapter 2. That these Gentile believers who were once pagans, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, have been brought near to God. That the wall of separation has been broken down. That the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles has been removed. That Jesus Christ has made peace through the blood on the cross to reconcile all things unto himself. So that Jews and Gentiles are built together to a church. And Paul is delighted in this new status that the Gentiles have in Christ. And then secondly, verse 1 is an introduction to this chapter. And then verse 2 to 13 is a digression. It's a parenthesis. It's Paul's side tracks from his earlier thought, from his original thought, and then he comes back to his thought in verse 14. Notice what he says in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So, so he breaks off from verse 2 to verse 13, and it's, it's this inspired rabbit trail. He tells us of the uniqueness of his ministry as given by God, the unfathomable and the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in verse 14 to 21, he will enter into a prayer. And th- so the question you might have this morning is, why does the apostle break off and digress from his train of thought from verse 2 to 13? And the answer is very simple. The answer is very simple. Look at verse 13. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. In other words, Paul is asking the church in Ephesus not to lose heart, not to be discouraged because of the tribulations that, they were go- that, that he is going through. Rather, they should embrace them. So the apostle is breaking off because of this deep pastoral concern that these people could be discouraged because he's in prison. Clearly, they will be concerned about his health, about his well-being. But he recognizes that the trials and the tribulations that he's going through should not become a stumbling block for God's people. That the God's people should not be disillusioned or discouraged or feel despondent. He acknowledges that his tribulations may shake their faith, and that is why there is that digression from verse 2 to 13, because clearly Paul is facing an uncertain future. Clearly, 
in the midst of tribulation, God's people may wonder, where is God in this situation? Where does this tribulation fit in with the promises of God? Can God allow his people to suffer in this way? And brethren, there is nothing that can be so perplexing to our hearts and our minds than to go through suffering. We ask ourselves a lot of questions. Why should the righteous suffer trials and tribulation in this life? And the church in Ephesus must have asked themselves, why will God allow an apostle to be chained, to be in prison? And so he digresses from verse 2 to 13 to offer comfort and encouragement to his, to his, to his troubled readers. And so how does Paul deal with the, with the whole matter of imprisonment and suffering? Paul is going to point out to us his reaction to his suffering. He's going to tell us how he viewed the matter in Rome so that his readers may be able to see it the way he sees it. And this is important, brethren, because every single one of us who is a Christian will suffer pain, suffering, tribulations at some point in our lives. And the vital question will be, how do you react to it? How will you react to your circumstances? Our reaction is very important. And the first point, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus. That's the first point. The second point is Paul a servant of Jesus Christ. So the first point, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He refers him to himself as a prisoner. And he does so for a good reason. When he writes this letter, he's in a Roman prison. And he spent there five years. For two years, he was in prison in Caesarea. We know that from Acts 24. And for three years, he has been in prison in Rome. We know that from Acts 28. And he begins to apply his mind into the situation. And he must, he must have asked himself, why am I in prison? What is the real reason for my imprisonment? And he tells us in verse 1 that he was no ordinary prisoner. He was not there because of human circumstances. He's not there because of the Roman law. The reason Paul says he's a prisoner in chains is because of who? Jesus Christ. He knew that the Lord could not cast him aside. He knew that whatever he was going through is because of who? Jesus Christ. It's important for us to remember how Paul became a prisoner of Jesus Christ. We know from Acts that Jerusalem was the birthplace of Christianity and most of the believers were Jewish. These apostles in Jerusalem were pillars of the early church. And we know from Acts chapter 9 
were introduced to Saul and we were told that he was breathing, he was breathing threats and murder against Christians. And he goes to the high priest, he asks for letters, these, these are warrants for him to go to Damascus and separate husbands from wives, separate parents from their children, to arrest them because these people were part of a sect he called the way. While he was on his way thinking that he's serving God, thinking that he's serving the traditions of the fathers, all of a sudden, a light from heaven shone around him. He was knocked off his horse. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus tells him to persecute God's people is to persecute me. And then he's taken and he becomes a Christian. Paul knows that he will not be in prison if he did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If Paul had continued breathing threats and persecuting God's people, he would never have suffered because of Christ. And over and over again, Paul describes himself as a prisoner for Christ. He gets to chapter 4. Look at the beginning of chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In the book of Philemon, he describes himself as a, as a prisoner of Christ twice. In Timothy, he mentions it. In Philippians, he describes himself as an apostle in chains. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 20, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 20 says, I'm an ambassador in chains. But for Paul, being a prisoner for Christ means more than just being in prison because means more than just being in prison in chains. These chains do not describe him as a prisoner under any human authority, but a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says that he's being led by Jesus Christ as a prisoner and he's led to death. But this is a triumphant procession. To be a prisoner of Christ, he means that he's enslaved to Christ as a bond servant to Christ. He'll tell the Colossians that it is because of the mystery of Christ in which I have been in prison. So he's a prisoner of men on behalf of Jesus Christ. Here's a man with a dramatic conversion. Paul did not peddle the prosperity gospel that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be successful. No, he's in a filthy dungeon. He'll be beaten, he'll be stoned, he'll be left for dead. He'll stand before governors, kings, princes. In 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about, he says he had far more imprisonments. He had countless beatings, often near death. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
It says, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of, of my anxiety for all the churches. Isn't it interesting that Paul did not believe that when he became a Christian, things will become better? He believed in Jesus Christ and he was willing to become his prisoner. Brethren, five years is a long time. If you think back five years um, back, some of you are in high school. Five years back, some of you are very young. And five years he had been in prison. He had lost his liberty. He had lost it because of false accusations that had been brought to him by the Jews. And he was under a constant guard, chained to a soldier. And he describes himself as being imprisoned in chains. I want us to look at how he viewed his imprisonment. So how he became a prisoner of Christ and then secondly, how he viewed his imprisonment. What is amazing to us is that in spite of all these circumstances, you have been in prison for five years, you are arrested on false charges, you have been chained to a Roman soldiers, yet we do not find one indication that he grumbled. There is no hint that he was bitter. You may well have have noticed here that he doesn't mention any word of complaint. He does not rumble. He does not mourn about his situation. He is a man in a filthy, dark dungeon, not knowing what the future will hold, and he doesn't complain. He does not wallow in self-pity. He does not feel sorry for himself. He does not blame God for his situation. He does not clench his fist at God and say, Why me? Why me? What have I done to deserve this? He does not condemn God for treating him unfairly. He does not look at his situation and resign himself to it. He does not say, Whatever will be, will be. He does not put up with it. We find none of this attitude in the apostle. Rather, we find an apostle rejoicing. The letters to the Colossians, the letter to the Ephesians, the letters to the Philippians, all of them are prison episodes. And there's a major theme in the book of Philippians as you read through. There's a theme that recurs over and over again, which is it? Joy. Severally says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. This is a man in prison, facing hardship, in need of encouragement, yet he tells the believers to be encouraged in the Lord. And so you may wonder, how can a man face hardship with joy? How did he view his imprisonment? Brethren, he saw it as God's sovereign decree. 
He saw it as fitting into God's sovereign purposes. He saw his circumstances as being directed and governed by the hand of God. All this is happening also as the will of God. This is the purpose of God. Everything that was happening was declared and decreed by God. It is the sovereign providence of God. Both good, both bad. God says in Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45 verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Both good, both bitter providences of life come from God. And how often we criticize the trials that happen in our lives. You may wonder, what good is there in this trial than to bring bitterness and pain in my life? Brethren, we should rejoice. We should glory in the providence of God. God is working out his eternal purposes in your life. God is ultimately bringing out his grace and glory in his people. We should rejoice in the providence of God. So you may wonder, how can a Christian reach this place of rejoicing? How do we come to that point? How does the apostle bring his readers to that point? Notice that it has nothing to do with his temperament or his personality. It's not because Paul was aggressive or an optimist. It has nothing to do with his character. Paul saw himself as being in the place of God. Paul saw himself as being in the purpose of God. But this providence was not without a purpose. It was not because without it was not without a reason. He saw his loving heavenly father guiding him. God is not so much concerned about our happiness as he's concerned about our holiness. God's great purpose in your life is that you may be conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. God is so much concerned about changing us from the inside, molding us and fashioning us for what we will be. God chose the efficiency in eternity past that they may be holy and blameless before him. God's purpose is to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. And if it will mean employing trials, persecutions, troubles, pain, suffering, and adversity in our lives, they will come. And how often do we question the usefulness of these things? How often do we criticize and complain about God's providential dealings in our lives? You see, when the sun is shining on our side with blessings, we have no problems at all. When everything is going on well, we see it is the hand of God. But when trials and adversity and troubles come our way, it's all different altogether. So that it's easy for us to ascribe the good things in our lives to God, while the, path, the, the things that are bad we attribute it to the devil. Paul is saying he's imprisoned for the will of God. Is in a literal, literal prison cell in Rome. 
the Roman government may think that they hold him there but Paul says I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ in Philippians 3 10 and 11 he says that they may know him and the power of his resurrection that they may share and, and share in and share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead When you're a prisoner of Christ, Jesus makes decisions for you and you yield to those decisions. You're ready to walk in his way. You realize that your Christian life has been given to you, that God has led you and you're his prisoner. Paul had a joy of realizing that he was not suffering because he was an evildoer. Yes, many people most of us are conditioned to think that if you have problems, it's because you're an evildoer. Yes, there's, there's some truth in that. But Paul was not an evildoer. Paul was not in prison because he was an evildoer. He was in prison because Jesus Christ wanted him to be there. He sees himself as sharing the suffering of Jesus Christ. And he tells the Philippians... For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It is part of the package. It is part of what is ordained. It is part of God's purpose. He tells the Ephesian elders that he is going to be imprisoned. And he acknowledges that it is God's purpose, that it was ordained by God. He doesn't tell the Ephesian elders that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for you. He tells them of his imprisonment. Everything was okay with him. Everything was part of God's sovereign purpose. He tells the Philippians, Philippians 1, that I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. His imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. You remember as we went through the book of Acts that Jerusalem was at the center of the universe so that everything passed through Jerusalem. And when he was imprisoned there, he was visited by many people and he had great opportunities to preach the gospel. Paul says, because of my imprisonment, the gospel is advancing. And there's no greater news than that. Paul tells Timothy, never to be ashamed to tell others of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never to be ashamed to be a partaker with him in suffering, 2 Timothy 1.8. So he saw himself as being in God's place. He was arrested on Jewish charges, but he doesn't call himself a prisoner of the Jews. He was a prisoner of the government of Rome, but he did not see himself as a prisoner of Rome. By this time, he had appeared before Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Caesar, and he did not see himself as a prisoner under any authority. And so he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He acknowledges that it is Jesus Christ who is the cause of this imprisonment. He sees Jesus Christ as the cause of this imprisonment. He is in this, he is in this prison 
because Jesus Christ wants him to be there. And then secondly, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. He says, he says on the second part of verse 1, on behalf of you Gentiles. And so he saw his imprisonment on behalf of the Gentiles. He sees himself as a servant on behalf of the Gentiles. He's saying that there's a reason being accomplished here because of you Gentiles. Paul, we know, had a unique ministry as it relates to the Gentiles. When God called him, when God commissioned him, he was commissioned specifically to the Gentiles. This was a strange assignment, remembering that there was no one more Jewish than Paul. Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But he comes and says, no one cherished his culture, his background, more than me. His primary mission, nonetheless, was to go to the Gentiles, whom he despised. So you may wonder, why will he lose his liberty because of Gentiles? Why will he be in prison because of the people that he despised? It is because of Christ. Second Timothy 2.10, he says, Therefore, I endure everything for the elect, for, sorry, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That his suffering is not in vain. His suffering is for the sake of the elect, that they may gain salvation. No one will have carried more prejudice against the Gentiles than Saul of Tarsus. And here he's ministering to the Gentile people, telling them that they were equal members of the family of God. Something amazing has happened. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that they may gain Christ. For Paul, the value of knowing Christ far surpasses anything he has ever done in his life. And the other side he says, all those other things are garbage. They are refuse. They're not, he doesn't even mind to mention them. In Philippians 3, 4 he says, whatever I have lost for knowing Christ cannot be compared for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So he's a servant to the Gentiles. He calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. He's a minister of Jesus Christ. Everything he saw was in relation to Jesus Christ. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, because he's in Christ, Christ is in him. And there's only one possibility. That is because he's a prisoner for Jesus Christ. He's suffering not for his own sake, but for the sake of Christ. 
It was his loyalty to the gospel that was his ultimate cause for his trials. And he's saying, I'm a servant for the Gentiles. Paul came to the realization that there's only one reason he's in prison. He's in prison because he has preached the glorious gospel to the Gentiles. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 21, we have the incident where he preached the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews stirred up the crowd and he was arrested. And he will finally be deported to the city of Rome. Paul could glory in his circumstances. He could glory in his position. He preached the gospel to everyone, but he realized that he had a special calling to the Gentiles. He saw this as a great privilege. As a great privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ and on behalf of the Gentiles. This was a great privilege. And he saw it as by the grace of God. He says, to bring to light, verse 9, to everyone. So he's going to preach to everyone, but most specifically to the Gentiles. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? And so to be used by God as a teaching instrument was a great privilege for Paul. As much as he was an apostle, his life was one of service. He was willing to wear chains for the sake of Christ. He was an apostle. Remember that he had raised the dead. He had performed miracles. He had performed healing. He says that he had been taken to the third heaven. At the end here he says, He's only a born servant of Jesus Christ. He's a servant of Christ. Not many pastors will call themselves this, that they are servant of Jesus Christ, that they are servants to God's people. Many will elevate themselves and give themselves titles. I can tell you how to be a servant in this church how to be a servant at home. You can only be a servant if you view your life as subordinate to something greater than you. The only way you can be a servant is to realize that the whole of your life has to submit to something greater than yourself. Sadly, we live in a time when people are not willing to serve others. People are not willing to to, to submit to others. People have elevated themselves above others. Paul tells the Ephesian elders that he does not count his life as anything. He says, I consider my life worth nothing. If your life is worth nothing, will you not be easily uh, willing to serve others Paul does not account his life of any value as precious to him if only he may finish his course 
and the ministry that he has received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Brethren, for you to serve others, you have to realize that your life is not important. Your life is not precious to you. What is precious to you is Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what will happen to you as long as you run the race that you finish your course which God has laid before you because you're a servant of Christ. And this is very countercultural in our time. People do not consider themselves people consider themselves greater than others. And we need to submit to one another. Paul will say that my life is not my own. If your life really is not your own, then you have nothing. You will live to be spent and to spend for the cause of the gospel. Paul is telling these Christians what it means to suffer for Christ and to be partaker of his suffering. And he saw himself as an example to the Gentiles. And this must have emboldened and encouraged the church in Ephesus to stand firm for Christ no matter what the cost. He saw his life through the lens of God's sovereignty. He saw his limitations. He saw his trials as an opportunity to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Applications. The first application is being a prisoner of Jesus Christ means freedom. Being a prisoner of Jesus Christ means freedom. If you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, you need to realize that you're a prisoner as well. But you're a prisoner to a different God. You're a prisoner of your own sin. You're a prisoner of Satan. You're a prisoner of the world. You are in prison to your own nature. You're in prison to your own sin. You're in prison to that which is killing you. If you're not in Christ, and you think that your prison is your fashion, your prison is money or luxurious things of this world, they look good, they may get your attention, but listen, being a prisoner of sin will kill you. But being a prisoner of Jesus Christ brings this glorious liberty. It is a blessed freedom. When you become a Christian, you're not your own. You have been bought with a price. We have our master who has bought us, who cares for us. And I believe every Christian should reach a place when they realize that they are imprisoned with Christ. That you're sold out for the cause of Jesus Christ. So that every circumstances, every providence that God brings our way, they are not limitations. They are an opportunity to display the glory of Christ. So if you're a Christian, you've been set free. You've been set free by the one whom you have willingly given yourself to. And God treats us like kings. And so it's a blessed liberation 
to be a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Then secondly, we need to look at our adverse circumstances through the lens of God's sovereign will. Paul looked at his circumstances and said it was God's plan. So that whatever happens to us will not complain, will not murmur, will not be bitter. You will not question God, why do you treat me this way? You, you, you do realize that the question why God, why, why, uh, why do you treat me this way? When you ask God that, it's a wrong view of your life. We think that God is there to fit his goals into our purposes. Do we really think that God must seek our permission before he can use us? Do you exist for your own purposes or for God's purposes? You see, brethren, God does whatever he pleases. You do not exist for your own end. You exist for God's purposes. And we should encounter circumstances in a God-honoring way. If you're in Christ, you're a servant of Christ. And Christ is your focus. You should not think that if I become a Christian, what's in it for me? During times of suffering, we may ask questions. And as Christians, we are not denying the reality that these circumstances can be painful and difficult. But we need to realize that the answer is God. And so perhaps today you're persecuted or you're suffering or you're in pain. And you're asking yourself, why? Why am I in this prison? Why does God allow these circumstances in my life? We need to realize that it is God ordaining that circumstances and using it for his glory and for your good. So whatever you're going through, it is the will of God. It may not seem good, but it is ultimately for your good. But if you're living in sin and God has brought painful experiences in your life because of your sin, you need to repent of your sins. And so thirdly, people will be influenced when they see us go through trials and suffering faithfully. It tells Ephesians in verse 13, it tells them, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He wants the Ephesians to be more than conquerors. So, so he's telling them, I'm, I'm not just putting up with the situation. I'm glorifying in it. He tells the Philippians, not to lose sleep, not to waste their tears because of the situation that he's going through. Why? Because what he has faced has worked to advance the course of the gospel. So God is using this circumstance in a better way. 
so we should see our trials and persecutions and see the glory of God. James says, count it all joy, brethren, when you face various, tri- various trials. So it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, when you face trials and tribulations. Because, brethren, they will come. And James says, consider it all joy. So we cannot we can rejoice not because of the trials, but we can rejoice in the trial. God is able to use that trial to turn it up for our highest good. And there's a divine purpose for that trial. There's nothing that happens in the life of a Christian by chance. There are no accidents. God is concerned. God is directing and governing and in control of everything. God doesn't just sit in the heavens and allow things to happen. He directs, he governs what will happen. He's a sovereign God of heaven and earth. If you do not know Jesus Christ, everything that has been said here can seem very foreign to you. I want to tell you that you're separated from God because of your sin. But God has made a provision for you to be reconciled back to him. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. And he was raised up. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us to apply these truths in our hearts and lives. As you face trials and tribulations, you might enter to see the glories of Christ shining forth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this afternoon. We pray that you may help us to embrace suffering in a way that glorifies you. Help us to put away sin, to be fully sold for the cause of Christ. Help us to be ready to suffer for him. We thank you and we give you praise. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.